Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Uh, back back then, trash talking worked. No one, no one really, no one really did that uh, before me. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience, toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the one and only Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. It's raining in Chicago this morning. It's about 6, 16 a.m., but Frank Trigg is here. UFC Hall of Famer Frank Trigg is our guest today. He's known as Twinkle Toes, one of the original heels of the UFC, and of course, he's in the Hall of Fame for his epic battles with Matt Hughes, who was one of my early UFC heroes. So it was a real honor to talk to Frank and bring it full circle. Fan of the week goes to Eric Bayless. He's the owner of Hopsmith and Fat Poor, two of my favorite taverns here in the Windy City. Eric, thanks for listening to the show. We appreciate it. Last but not least, folks, if you want to subscribe to our text messaging service, text WRESTLE, W-R-E-S-T-L-E, to the number 22454. Text WRESTLE to 22454. We'll send you episode updates, merch updates, all kinds of good stuff at Russell22454. That's it, folks. Let's give it up for Frank Trigg. Frank Trigg, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> Dude, we, were, we were just yucking it up about your family, and I was fascinated to learn that you were raised in a wolf den of six other boys. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Seven other boys. Seven. Seven other, yeah. There's, a stepbrother was raised with us, too, so there's there's... there's Seven of us, so six other brothers, with a family unit, and then we had a stepbrothers regular, so it was a total of eight. Um, all, all boys, yeah, all, and they're all like they're all super studs. Like a couple of them have to carry carry guns for a living. Like they have, you know, this is their job, and I have other ones that live overseas, and their job is to work for the government in some form or fashion. I have one brother that works for the Saudi government, but he's the liaison between the U.S. government and the Saudi government because of what he did for the U.S. government, and so they recruited him, and now he's the guy that talks back and forth, and it's like everyone in my family is like super squared away. I'm the only, I'm the only guy that's really not got all my shit together, <laughs> to, be, to be quite honest. Were they all athletes as kids? Like, what was the experience like growing up at the Trigg household? One was an All-American at uh, um, the Naval Academy uh, as a wrestler. Uh, one, um, 101st Airborne. Uh, was athletic in high school, but nothing like nothing that be like he's not gonna talk about the four touchdowns he had at Polk High School in his senior year. He's not, you know, it's just like 
Uh, it's not what we do. Uh, my younger brother, once immediately younger than me, was actually a better wrestler than me. Mm. Um, got recruited to a couple of universities, but chose to go the law route instead. And now works overseas as, a, as an attorney for the U.S. Um, try and think. I was, I was probably the most athletic. My, older, my two older brothers both had scholarships to play football at mm. uh, the college level. And uh, for whatever reason, um, one went, one went uh, in the military one uh, uh, battle, still battles me because you never stop battles with uh, uh, alcoholism and drug abuse. Mm. And so that went a different route, but now he's very successful um, what he's doing right now. Uh, but it's just, it delayed his, his, his growth because of getting stuck in that. You kind of mentally get stuck at being, you know, 17, 16 years old. And all of a sudden you're 25, you're like, wow, I've been an alcoholic for all these years. I got to fix myself. And then, then you start your pattern. So it took him a little while. Um, but I, I was probably the most athletic out of all of them. But my, my younger brother, immediate younger brother, was probably the better athlete of the group, but chose a totally different route. And I just kept sticking with it. And were your parents people who were like super sports parents or it was kind of on your own to get it done? On my own to get it done. Um, that many kids, you got to you gotta handle. There's too many moving parts. There's always something. So drop this kid off at practice. Go take this kid to this other practice go grab his kid's homework, you know, dinner, whatever, blah, blah. And then, you know, try to put it all together <clears throat> and then pick up the skip from practice, get home, get homework started, get dinner put on the table. Like it's like, there's not, they're not very, they weren't very, as a matter of fact, you know, as you look back at it, you know, now I'm 48, I look back at it and go, they actually, my parents actually weren't very supportive at all of my sports. It was kind of, it was almost like a babysitter for them mm. where, okay, this kid is, I know where this kid is. I know what he's going to be doing for, these, for, for this time or this time. I know he's going to be okay. Go. <clears throat> just, just go. And it's, you're going to be fine. And that's kind of how it was. Um, it kept us from selling drugs. It kept us from, you know, I didn't start drinking until I was 24, 25. Uh, uh, because I just, wow. did, I had no time. I was too busy trying to compete. I didn't have time to drink, you know. Um, uh, in my mind. I mean, obviously, there's other wrestlers in, in Western New York that were drinking at the same time. Some of them were better than me at, at, the, at the high school level and even at the college level. Uh, I just didn't, I just, in my mind, was like, if I drink, I'm just going to get worse. I, I can't do it. Uh, <clears throat> but it kept us kind of on a straight and narrow. We couldn't run around with our friends. We couldn't, you know, do crazy stuff because we were too busy at practice. You know, it was kind of the, that was kind of like a babysitter, you know, education. And, and you know, back then, wrestling was only men. There, there was no women, really. I mean, you might have one or two in a whole, in a whole state you know, the rest at your, at your age group, but there's nothing like, like it is now. So it was all dudes and, and we're run by men and we had men coaches. And so you learned, you know, how to do man stuff from other men, you know, and then you go home and your dad teach you man stuff to do other stuff with, with men. So it was like this, you know, this, this, this uh, what is it? How do they say uh, it takes a, it takes a tribe to raise a child. Yes. It really much was that tribe situation where, you know, a lot of the parents, you know, became surrogate parents, you know, because Definitely. you're around them all the time. So. And you're seeing people at their lowest. I mean, there's nothing lower than going to a tournament with someone else's parents. Their kid wins it. You go like one and two, and then they got to see you there. That's vulnerable. I went, I went, I think Owen, I say it's Owen 32, but it might've been like Owen 18, my first year of wrestling. <laughs> like I didn't win one match. I just, I just sucked. I mean, I was horrible. And so I tell about the lowest. They had to deal with me. Like the first beginning, I was very frustrated because I kept losing. And then it became such a norm for me. I didn't care like the second half of the season. I was like, oh, just, I'm just going to lose anyway. So, what, you know, why even care about it? Why even get emotional about it? And that's when everyone started like, hey, look, you got to get like some, you got to get some, some emotion about this. You can't just accept losing all the time. 
you know, and that was kind of one of those deals where they had to like teach me how not to accept losing, you know, in the very beginning. Right. Well, I mean, it carried through because, you know, everyone knows you for your UFC career. You're a UFC Hall of Famer. Um, we're going to talk about the Matt Hughes fights because Matt Hughes was my guy and I'll never forget those. Yeah. Um, but I, I really want to know, how'd you get to Oklahoma and Jack Spates in the early 90s? That seems so random. To so me. I actually uh, got recruited as a recruited walk-on um, to go to Oklahoma State who had just won the back-to-back national titles. Um, and I would have been – so. I would have been a, a uh, paid recruit if I had won the state tournament. I lost the semifinals where we had super sectionals, which is like we had, you know, you have to win super sectionals to go into the states. And back then there was only one states for all classes, ABCD. Hmm. You had one state champion for all classes. And that's the way that now you have, in, I believe in New York, they have a state tournament for each class, ABCD. Yep. Like for us, it was, we had our sectionals which was all your class, so like all the big schools were A, the small schools were D. Then you have your super sectionals with the top four of each class, so it was a group of 16. You show up and you wrestle, and the guy that wins super sectional goes, but I, lose, I lost to my arch rival in the semifinals and didn't go to state. So all my scholarships that were on the table all got pulled because I didn't win the state tournament. And I was, you know, I was like ranked third or fourth or something in the state. I beat a couple, beat a couple of former state champs throughout the season. So I kind of got ranked and they were like, yeah, yeah you went, you went state hundred percent and give these scholarships and then they got pulled. So I was like, I'm being recruited, walked on to everywhere at this point. I might as well go to the best schools recruited, walked on. So I went to Oklahoma state. Unfortunately, Joe C the head coach then who's just passed away a little while ago uh, due to cancer. He uh, had some recruit recruiting violations and Oklahoma state got pushed out of the um, national tournament for a couple of years. So all the redshirt freshmen, basically just transferred out mm. right and so i went to phoenix college in phoenix arizona uh my did two years there right uh got my associate's degree and it was like okay now i'm going to transfer back to a four, to a four-year i got recruited by the major programs back then it was you know iowa state um uh, uh oklahoma state oklahoma u um syracuse edinburgh the, you know the east coast ones like you know buffalo like those ones, and I, I realized at that point, like, this isn't going to last forever. i got to get a degree, otherwise I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to make any money. So where, where am I going to go? They're going to make sure I'm going to be able to I'm gonna be able to graduate? Jack Spates was that guy. Jack Spates is the guy that he back then was doing, I think, I want to say 96% graduation rate. Like, if you came to his, if you came to him, you were going to graduate. He was going to make you graduate one way or the other. You were getting out of there with a degree. And that was, like, very important to me. Because my dad always said, you know, at some point athletics is gonna is gonna end on you. No matter what you want to do, no matter how you want to run it, you're not gonna have any more athletics. What are you gonna do? You gotta have a job, and you gotta have some way to get that job. So you have a degree. So I went to OU, and that's how I ended up. And it was weird because I started Oklahoma State, and then went to Oklahoma U. This was like a weird thing, but that's not really what happened. It's just that at the time when I had to make a choice, that was the that was the school that was gonna get me to be able to get my degree, and so that's where I went. So Spates was known as kind of like someone who would help help you in your business life as well back then. His whole thing was building all Americans on and off the mat. That was his. That was his saying. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an all American off the mat as well. He made everybody kind of, you know, in, into the understanding of how life works once you're out of college. You gotta understand that you got, you gotta have a job. Like, well, and back then it was, there wasn't podcasts. There wasn't, you know, internet servicing stuff. And and you know, you didn't have those things. You had a, you had to go get a nine to five. That was your job. Or you're gonna be in sales. Like that mm-hmm. was it. It was the only, only two route, routes you kind of had was go do medical sales. Mm-hmm. Or go or go get a nine to five job doing doing whatever, and so it was like we really had a press, and and it was great because now we you know now you got guys making whatever 
couple million dollars a year on TikTok, you know, a couple million dollars a year on Instagram. You know, like, that was unheard of. We actually had to get a real job and do something significant. You know, this is before the Kardashians popped off. This is before Paris Hilton came out. Like, we hit this way back. So we actually had a real jobs, and he was like, you got to have something. So he, made, he just made it, and, and he forced it and instilled that in us, and, and we argued and fussed and fight, and by the time he graduated, I don't think anybody really liked him. Like, you loved him as a freshman, hated him by, as a senior. Like, you're like, I just want to kill this guy. He's a pain in my ass. He, he pushes me too hard. He doesn't, and, but then I would see you go back and look at him 20 years later, you're like, wow, thank God he did that. <laughs> I never would have finished. I never would have went through that process. I never would have wrote that paper. I never would have went and did that debate. I would have just, you know, fumbled my way through and being part of the program. How was the transition from East Coast to living in the middle of Oklahoma? Weird. Weird. Uh, um, It's a hot topic right now in the U.S. because I'm mixed. Black father, white mother. So that going to Oklahoma, it's in in New York, it's kind of like a Puerto Rican, you know, are you, you know, are you Colombian? Are you Guatemalan? We can't really tell. You kind of, you know, it's like this weird thing. You go to Oklahoma, they know you're black right away. 100%, 100%, they know. So it's like, you're too white to be black, if you're black to be white, so I'm kind of in that weird zone where I'm just stuck in the middle. You have acquaintances, you have people who talk to you, but you're not going to go have Thanksgiving dinner with them. You know, but wrestling is that group where you get kids from all over the country popping into to the Midwest, right? You know, so when I went to Oklahoma State, the first guy that ever talked to me on campus was Randy Couture. He was the first guy that ever talked to me on campus. Like, n- nobody, like three days, nobody talked to me on campus. I ended up bumping to the guy that I saw uh, walking out of the locker room that I was walking when I was walking in the locker room one day to go get a sauna workout in and he just started talking, checking me up, whatever. And Randy and I have now been friends for 28 years, 29 years, whatever. So it's, it's been, you know, it's like that, you know, where you're like, geez, it's tough. It's a tough transition. And I talk fast. I have a lot of hand movements. I don't have the same draw. I don't have the same understanding. Oklahoma state is a rural school. It's an agricultural school. So it's very, a lot of vet- veterinarians come out of there. So it's a lot of cows and horses and sheep and, you know, stuff like stuff I wasn't used to and didn't understand. And so it's a transition, but it's also a growing period when you go to college. You got to learn, you got to, you know, you got to, you got to put yourself out there to kind of get a new experience and, and grow and develop. And that was one of the, the growing times. Same thing at OU, we use a little bit more business oriented, oil oriented, but still it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a group of people where you don't really understand what they're talking about. When they talk about, First time I ever, ever any time I first time I'd ever heard Friday Night Lights. Hmm. They kept talking about Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Lights, and all these kids from Texas, Friday Night Lights, Friday Night Lights. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, high school football games, man. What? I'm like, what? Like, that's a thing for you guys? We might show up for homecoming. You know, if there's a if the, the girl I'm dating from the rival high school, we have to play in that high school, then I might go to the game. But I mean, it's not that big of a deal to them. It's a religion. Oh yeah. Like, you know, down in Texas, it's a religion. Like Friday Night. Friday nights is a big deal. I was like, and I had to learn that, you know, and, and trying to understand, we're talking about like, we're just going to drive, you know, we're just going to drive down to Dallas real quick. Right. To me, Dallas was like a whole different world. <laughs> two and a half hours away. Yeah. You know, it was two and a half hours away. I was like, what are you talking about Dallas? Like, this is, that's a whole different state. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, no, it's just right there. Let's drive down. I'm like, okay, well. And so I learned these things, you know, how to, how to pick it up and, and, um, but it was tough. It was, it was tough. It was not easy. And, but nothing in your life should be easy if it's going to be rewarded. And that's like that also critical journey of, of like boy becoming a man and kind of getting out there on the own. And, you know, you experience those lonely moments and you experience, you know, good moments as well. I mean, see, I didn't even know you went to Oklahoma state till you said that because I coincidentally am doing a documentary on John Smith right now. And I've been down to Oklahoma a lot in August and September. 
And, you know, the, Joe C leaving is a pretty big deal because then John had to come in and coach. Yeah. Um, dude, that team was freaking loaded, though. Chris Barnes, all those dudes. Yeah, Chris Ooh. Barnes, Ryan Couture, um, the Prilla Twins, Alan Freed. Jeez, uh, who else is on that team? Well, mean, obviously, you had, Pat. You Corey Bays and, and Eddie Woodburn were still there coaching. They had just come off the team. You know, Glenn Lanham, who's now the head coach at, at Duke, was there, was, was, had just finished up. And I mean, you walk in that room, Kenny Monday, like you walk in there, you're like, Ooh. I mean, there were, day, there were days, legit days. Pat Smith, Pat, Pat Smith, Alan Freed, Chuck Barbie were basically my training partners. Mm. There would be a week where I wouldn't score a takedown in practice, in practice, not one takedown. And I'm talking about kicking, screaming, mad, foaming at the mouth, going crazy. Can't get one takedown. You're like, this is, can't get off the bottom. Got Pat Smith riding you for a half hour in practice. You can't get him off you. Like, <laughs> this is nuts. I mean, it's, it's a whole new world. It's a whole new level of oh. a guy coming from an area where you're like, I would always get away. I would always take a guy down. I would always put him on his back. It would never fail me. Never fail me. Show up in that room. Be like, good luck. Good luck. Man, and the Perler twins would pull me to the side. Be like, you'll get it. Just keep working. You'll get it. Just keep working. It happens to all of us. It happens off. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't happen to all of you. I want you coming. You know, and then, you know, we get where we get. But, yeah, it was like one of those deals, man. That room was a killer room. It was a killer room. If they didn't have those violations, they could have gone on a run themselves. You know, if Joe would have stayed. Yeah. I, th I think, personally, I think they probably would have did at least two more, maybe maybe three more. But then depending on recruiting, you know, also you can have a 10-year run, you know, mm -hmm. and, and be the, and, and be like Iowa, Oklahoma State, you know, then all of a sudden Penn State, you know, or mm -hmm. Minnesota, then Penn State. Like, it could have been that run. Like, that's where, but, but it didn't happen that way. It's just, and that's how it goes. Like, you have that that problem where, there are so many things you got to deal with, you know, at, at the college level to keep, to keep regulations and keep, you know, and the thing is, is that the violation was an athlete that was best friends with a recruited athlete going to the training camp, going to the, 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 the camp that the school was putting on. So Oklahoma state's putting on this camp for the local area. And one of the guys who was at the school drove the kid that was recruited there was a recruit he already signed he was coming mm -hmm. to the school gave him a ride but he hadn't started class yet that's a recruiting violation that spun everything out of control cost cost chuck his last year cost chuck his national title cost chuck joe, won the national title that year cost him cost him his year done cost joe his job joe never yeah, coached joe, joe again never coached again one of the best international and national wrestling coaches on the planet never coached again no one ever no one ever trusted to pick him up again no. It was like, man, it was crazy how hard that was. Brutal. And he applied like, everywhere. He applied everywhere to keep coaching. No one would touch him. It's like Watergate. The cover-up was worse than the crime. The cover-up was the reason everyone got, you know, the lying and all that. It's like, it, to me, it's just a lot of wasted money by the NCAA. But, you know, yeah. once you lie to them, you're fucked. And what are you going to do? And, you know, I, I read a story. That, go ahead. No, no. It's about to say, like, they, they're, and that's their thing. It's like. You tell us the truth, we're gonna give you a little low. It's like you see now in MMA. These guys come on and go, hey, you got caught with a picogram of, of testosterone in your system. You, you're right, I took it, I stopped taking it six weeks ago, I got caught. Okay, you have a six month ban. I don't know if you're about I don't know how I got that. I don't, I don't know how I got in my system. I don't know what's going on. Guess what? You got a five year ban. Like, yeah, but this guy had the exact same amount. Yeah, but he told us he had it. You try to lie your way around it. Now we're gonna we're gonna have to dump it on you. And that's what the NCA is like. And they're they're criminals. The NCA is criminals. 
they're just a bunch of freaking thugs and criminals. Like they are, they, they honestly, um, uh, I don't know if you do follow Mike DeSabato, uh, Oklahoma, uh, uh, Ohio State guy, real good friends with Kevin Randleman uh, when he was living in, in great friends with Mark Coleman, wrestled at Ohio State, obviously packs that program still, very wealthy, but backs the program. And he's like not paying football players, like giving football players at the college level a salary is ridiculous. The amount of money when the schools that closed down for the pandemic, they're not worried about kids coming for class. They're still charging. You do your class virtually now. You do it over Zoom, but you still have to pay the same amount. Even though you're not in school, you're at your home, it's, a, it's still $40,000 a semester. It doesn't change. What they were complaining about, we have to get football back on the field because that's where all the money comes from. Well, you know, if you're a national championship team, the ACC, SEC, those guys, we're talking $30, $40 million a year as a donation the football program being on and winning games oh yeah well, what do the athletes get we gave you a room we gave you some food we gave you some books gave you some athletic clothes to wear around and we gave you tuition that's great that's about fifty thousand dollars i'm your star quarterback i literally won the heisman are you trying to tell me that i can't get paid for this i can't and i can't work right because i'm practicing all the time and studying so i can't go get another job like everybody else can so it's it's crazy that ncaa in my personal opinion is still a bunch of thugs. They are still just a bunch of idiots. They're out there trying to trying to make as much money as possible for themselves and make nothing and not give anything away. I, mean, I could really, honestly, I hate to say it, especially in this climate, kind of like slave labor. It kind of is because you're you're giving me fifty grand a semester, hundred grand a year to make your program thirty million dollars. Like, how does that work out, man? That, that's like, was it three cents on a dollar? It's nuts. Especially when you talk about your alma mater, OU, that's like big time, big time. That's like Ohio State level. That's real money at OU. I mean, so is OSU, don't get me wrong, but OU yeah. is just another level. It's an, For football, it's another level. For football. We, for some, football. We, had, we had some lean years, you know, and then, you know, baseball, softball, men and women's gymnastics for a while. We're on a run. Like, we were killing stuff, you know. It was just it was amazing about the sports program, but like any sports program, I mean, if you, you know, any sport at any level, eventually, you know, Lewis Hamilton can't always win at Formula One. At some point, he's going to fall off, though. He's the guy right now. Right. You know, you know, uh, uh, Tom Brady's not always going to be with the Patriots. He's not always going to win every championship. At some point, he's going to fall off. Well, guess what? Now he's with Tampa Bay. I mean, it's just, this is what sports, this is how it happens. So eventually, everyone's going to fall off. But, man, you go, you go to OU. If you've never been to a big program, big football program, and it's like your first time as a student athlete, which I've never been a big, big football program. Ne- never. I show up, and you're like, that's Barry Switzer. I heard about that guy all the time. Like, what the hell's he doing in the stands? He got, he got, he got violated. He's out, but he's, he's still there. He's still there watching the games. Wow. Like, this is incredible. It's a huge deal. It's a whole new level of, of athleticism. And you realize these coaches are getting paid back then, you know, you know, two, two and a half million dollars a year. Now it's way more than that. Saving gets, I think saving gets like eight million or something a year. Uh, but back then, you know, that was a huge amount of money. You're like, Okay, now I understand why this guy's driving the brand new Beamer. I understand why he's driving the brand new Mercedes. I get why he's got the million dollar home. I understand all these things now. And you're watching these guys come through in their, you know, custom made suits and there's custom made stuff and they're trunching around. And you're like, okay, this is a business. This is not a sport anymore. This is a real college athletics is a business. It's to make money for the university at every level. Every every sport is to make money. Especially when you're, you know, the first time you you're there and they're your own age, or especially now when they're all younger than all of us, right? When we watch Saturday football, they're way younger. You're like, how the hell is that dude just a normal college student? And I mean, like the first yeah. thing I always think of is like how, 
like what what is his like dating scene like he must just get flooded with requests you know it's like those dudes are just a whole other world and girls you know and there's a there's a, a former judo player roddy ferguson is a phd um lives down in florida but he wrote a book and it's about your partnership and your relationships and you watch these guys get out from and make the next make the next jump make the next level they go from college to the ncaa and you see the guys well now even take it back a step you start recruiting and you're looking at them when the when the team is looking at them they look at everything about them mm. not only the grades and grades don't matter it doesn't matter they just want to see can you complete tasks you were given a task to complete sociology how'd you do in sociology you were given a task to do these things you know, obviously you don't need a degree to play in the ncaa and a lot of guys don't or excuse me in the, in the nfl a lot of these lines of guys don't but now we're starting to look at their family their cousins their girlfriends what kind what rumors are going around behind the scenes on them you know is are there are there sexual assault rumors no charges but rumors going on you know is this going to be an issue is this going to be a problem because now you're 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 the number one you're the first round draft pick for our for our program whatever it is and you're out in a bar getting now more sophisticated better women being thrown at you what are you going to do how are you going to react are you a good person do you have a good heart like they have to start looking at these things and it really is about the partner that these guys that a lot of these guys come with if they've got a great part the reason why tom brady one of the reasons let, let, let's we can break it down to 100 million different parts one of the reasons why he has such a great he's such a great athlete still to this day at what is he 49 41 because yes. he has a great partner giselle is a great partner she understands being in the high life, having people being thrown at you. Like, I mean, she's a supermodel. Like, you, you understand. She gets it. She understands it. So they know how to deal with it together. It's about having that partner. And in college, <clears throat> most of these guys, are, you know, most most athletes, me included, we're kind of nerds. We kind of show up. We're so embedded into our sport. We don't really know how to talk. We don't really know how, what the dating scene's like. We're not really sure of ourselves. Yeah, we're great. We're great in our field of play. We're not great outside that field of play. Like, what do we do? And sometimes you make bad choices and bad partnerships. And then all of a sudden you're in this partnership and you're there and, and they have a different plan than you do. You know, they want to have the big house, the big car. They want to buy everything. They want to have the diamonds and show that they're, you know, that they're with a, 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 an NFL player. And then this other person and your, your mindset is like, just focus on the task at hand. Let's just get through this. Let's just get, let's just get on the team. I still have to get through training camp. Let me just get on the team first. And then, you know, things are like that. So it's a lot of it's about the partnerships that they pick going through. And so we go back to your point of, you know, their dating scenes. Yeah. A guy's got potential. A guy that wins a big game. Like everybody, everybody wants to be the campus hero. You know, everybody wants mm -hmm. that. You want to get, you want to get an NCAA title in, in wrestling in Iowa university. You know, I mean, what do you think? Like, what do you think is going to happen? Of course, everybody wants to be with the hero. Everybody wants to say I'm with that guy or gal who just won the national title. I, everybody wants to say that. And, and so it's it's uh, it's it's tough. It's a hard scene, but you got to be, you know, you got to stick your head up and figure it out. You know, and it's another one of those we talked earlier. It's another one of those challenges. You got you got to figure it out. Dude, you're you're talking about a subject that's near and dear to me right now. I'm 31. Um, I have a girlfriend, but that the managing of relationships of people who are both into their own world, like she does her thing and I'm into my thing. That's a really tricky thing. And you you mentioned something that I wanted to segue into was. Do you still run the blog where you give dating advice for women? Or no, I don't. And uh, part of that is because the uh, my ex-wife's family, no matter what I said or what I did, would spend five days after every blog post on the website <laughs> I was on just bad mouthing it 
and they would they would spend most of the time out there having to delete and remove all these things and they're finally like look it's just too much of a headache like it's just not the amount of income we have coming in the amount of time we're spending on just maintaining your blog because there was like vicious vile like stuff you can't have out because you know, there was a it was a pg rated blog page and but it was like, like the most it. read blog they would do right when it would go yeah. out yeah to, to it, tell it people what it is because people can't even believe this so basically what i was doing is telling you through my mistakes my mishaps and my and my i mean it wasn't it wasn't like don't do this because i don't know what you're talking about i'm telling you what not to do because i did it this is how i screwed up this is how i messed up my marriage how i messed up my dating scene this is how i messed up you know uh, uh my kids lives this is what i did wrong learn from my mistakes was the whole was the whole point of it you know and learning from and, and showing like yeah you're right i should have done that you're right i should i should i should have sent that text i should have made that phone call I should have been at the bar past 1.30 in the morning. I shouldn't have been out riding around in the car with this person, you know, late at night. I should not have done these things. And so that's where, that's where the whole premise of it was. And then the ex's family was just so bitter and bent, bent over. They couldn't get over it. So it was kind of like, all right, whatever, shut it off. And then we moved on to doing just everyday blogs. And then it ended, ended up being better because it was a longer run. and ended up being an a, a eight-year run or a nine-year run of doing, of doing everyday blogs for different websites. It's incredible the amount of content you kick out. One last question on that, though. It why didn't you do it for guys versus girls? That's what I think is the interesting part is that girls read it more than guys. I'm fascinated by Because that. it was started out as a blog for guys. It really was. And then girls just kept reading. Girls were putting in all the questions. We're adding in all the questions. So you had to tear it to, you have to understand your, your crowd. Got you it. have to understand your audience. So that the audience was becoming women. So it just became, this is what guys, this is how guys think. It's basically what it came out to. It's like, this is what guys are looking. So if your guy is doing this, this is actually what he's thinking. You know, you've seen that meme. <laughs> Where he's, where she's like, in, they're both in bed, and she's like, uh, uh, I don't know, he's thinking about another girl right now. And he's actually rolled over, like, I wonder how I'm gonna get out of a triangle lock tomorrow in jiu-jitsu practice. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, just yes. because a guy's not talking to you and not and not being uh, communicative at that moment doesn't mean he's thinking about some other chick. It just he's got something else on his mind. You have to now exp ask them what is the deal about being on their mind? Like, what is happening? What is going on in your world? What's happening in your in your in your little universe right now in your own little space? Because relationships are are two spheres that have to overlap at some point. And if they never overlap, it's not a relationship. It's just two people that are roommates. You have to make this overlapping position and what's going to happen, how is it going to work? And, and it's hard. Like you look at uh, um, uh, uh, Austin and Paige Van Zandt, mm. their marriage. They're both fighters. They're both, you know, for a while she was the upper dog. Now he's the upper dog and they're kind of floating up and down. But you, at first you're kind of like, it's kind of annoying to pay attention to. It's kind of weird paying attention to me like, well, that relationship really works. Like they, they got it, they got it, kind of got it down. You got to kind of pay attention to them because they understand to have two pro athletes underneath the same house working towards the same goal at the same time, trying to figure these things out. It's hard. Ooh. Same thing with uh, um, uh, 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 Raquel Pennington and, and Tesha Torres, two pro fighters underneath the same roof trying to figure out their lives. And, and it's not, it's not easy. Don't think it's all fun and games. They're all happy about it all the time. But these are two. Couples that kind of like, yeah, you know, she she's being a pain in my ass today. She's cutting weight. Like it's just it's, it, this just sucks. Like I'm not I'm not in training camp right now. Yeah, I'm going to practice, but I'm not in training camp. I'm not as intense. But all of a sudden, I'm on a diet because she's on a diet. <laughs> you know, it's like how does that work? I'm like, yeah, listen, I get it. I understand. Yeah, it's like, you know, this is how it works. So it's it's those are it's interesting to see how people are handling things now. But yeah, but you gotta relationships are hard. It's a constant it's a constant process every day. Every day it's a work in progress. There's nothing harder in life. And I've gone through a couple of phases where I was engaged and I wasn't. And then like a year after you're feeling good, you're like, I got, I got life mastered. But then you're like, oh yeah, I'm not, I don't have a partner. So like when you add that in, 
It's whole Oops. another level. There's your mistake. I have life. I have life mastered, except I don't have a partner. Why do you need a partner to have your life mastered? Right? You have yeah. your life mastered. Yeah. Your partner is the bonus to life being mastered. It doesn't complete your life being mastered. It's the bonus too. There's a bunch of single people that can ha they have their life mastered. A shit ton. There's a sure. bunch of people that are married that can't figure their life out at all. You got to figure yourself out first. And then your partner comes in and that partner is the bonus on top of it. It's the, it's the cherry on top. It's the whipped cream on top. It's the extra. I got everything else that's going great. And now I have a great partner. Boom. That's the, that's the thing on top. Because remember, if the partner comes in, you have your life mastered. Your partner comes in, your life starts to fall apart. That's not the partner. You got to get rid of the partner. You dump it off because now your life is starting to fall apart. Something's wrong. And the only thing I added was the partner. Everything else was great before that. Now we're having problems. Okay, get out of there. You know, get out of there. But How do many you times have you argued? How many times you fought? How many times like, can we have a Thanksgiving now without arguing with my dad? Can you have a, you know, can oh. we have a Christmas now without arguing with my mom? You're like, all right, that's it. We're over. We're done. <laughs> it's not going to work. Like, you're Dude. right. Like, we've been arguing the last five years in a row at every family holiday. Your family hates me. Let's just, let's just either not see your family ever again, which is not fair to you, or we're going to have to go separate ways. <laughs> Call spade know. a spade, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard, man, because it's familiar and it's comfortable and it's, you know, and who the hell wants to go through a, a breakup? You know, oh. now breakups are like divorces. You live together, you have bills together, you bank accounts together, you own cars together. Like it's like a, it's like a, a divorce. It's hard. You got to separate all that stuff out. You got dogs. You might have a kid. No dogs. Figure that out. It's just <laughs> like, geez, man. It's brutal to think about. And you know, when you think about your life of trying to rise through the ranks and be one of the best fighters in the world, it was only amplified 100 times. And yeah. I, I wouldn't be doing the audience justice, Mr. Frank Trigg, if we didn't spend a little bit of time on some fighting stuff. One of my first questions was, when you first met Patrick Burris, did you have any aspirations of kind of how your life would be in the next 10, 15 years? No, none. None. It was weird. So Pat and, uh, and Christy, um, they were like, just come to judo. Just come over to USA Stars and do judo. Just come by and check it out, whatever. Uh, uh, Quincy Clark had been over there. He, he was a um, runner-up to the national tournament for OU. And then ended up being on the Greco team for a couple of years, but uh, but made that transition. Went what was doing judo was just like screwing around with it. It's like you know, just come over and screw around. Now, good news is that Patrick had a wrestling background mm -hmm. as well as a judo background, so he kind of understood my mentality. And I showed up and just started just started competing, you know, uh, just started training. And then kind of was like, oh, let me see how good I am at this. Let me go compete. And I went and competed and was like, okay, it's not bad at the local circuit. Let's kind of see what I do. And then when the bigger circuit got smashed up, it was just like, oh, okay, these are guys who've been doing nothing but judo since. They were six, seven years old, like wrestlers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. It's a different mentality. Yeah, there's a little bit of crossover, but the reality of it is, is that you know, like uh, uh, Mike Swain is a great judo player. Jimmy Pedro is a great judo player, decent wrestlers, right? But they're, you know, I think Pedro is a two-time world champ. I mean, mm -hmm. You're like decent wrestler, amazing judo player. Like just because you play basketball doesn't mean you can go play baseball, Michael Jordan. <laughs> right. Because you're great at basketball doesn't mean you be great at something else. We think we are. It doesn't work like that. Though. I mean, it's the time in, the experience, the rough. And, and so when I started with Pat and Chris, I had no idea. had no idea I was ever going to be in the fighting game. Fighting wasn't really a thing at that point. And remember, I had, I had Severin's brother as my coach at, at Phoenix College. So he had talked about it a little bit. Well, hey, my brother's doing this thing. We fight. He makes like 80 grand. It's like a big deal. He paid off his house up in Michigan. It's a huge thing. And you're like, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm in Arizona where they both went to Arizona State. So it was like they were right there. And, and, and Dan and Dave were, were still kind of in the area, but obviously, you know, Dan went home and fought, and that was kind of what happened. And you're like, I, it was on my radar, 
but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was, you know, we're talking 94, 95, UFC was 94. You know what I'm saying? It's just brand new. It was just a new thing. No weight class. Who's going to fight Tank Abbott? Like, it was like, so it wasn't a top <laughs> these kind of things. They had weight classes, you know? One of my first fights was against Paul Herrera, who was, back then, was Tank Abbott's main training partner. You know? And they, they now they don't talk. They fought some, some breakup, whatever happened business-wise, you know? But they were like, I fought Paul and beat Paul. It was like, it was like a big, all of a sudden, Tank wants to fight me. I'm like, you're 265 pounds, man. I'm 165 <laughs> pounds. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And coming from a wrestling background, we have weights. I'm like, there's no way. No way. So, no. Had no idea where my life was going to go when I first showed up with Pat. Had no clue at all. You know, none whatsoever. And he asked me, hey, do you want to make a couple hundred bucks? Go and fight this guy. I'm like, sure. I went down and fought this guy. Made a couple hundred bucks. He was like, oh, okay. Well, guess what I can do with this $200? You're not making any money at all. Or, or making a little bit of money as an assistant coach. You're like, wow, this is like, this is like three weeks of living for me. Like, this is great. And I'm already training anyway. It wasn't like I was doing anything different. Let's go do this. So it was a lot of fun. Especially when back then, college coaches were literally making nothing. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of guys where they said their wife had to support them to be a college coach because there was literally zero money into it. So, I was the second assistant at OU making $1,200 a month. Yeah. And having to, like, run not, – not run practice. I, was, I wasn't allowed to run practice. But I would have to – run the extra workouts for all the guys. I would have to be there for the morning workouts for the guys that were injured and couldn't run the track. They have to do the aerodyne bikes workout with me instead. And it was just, I mean, it was hard. It was a lot of work. You're like, wow. And then I thought I was rich. $1,200, it's a lot of money. Like I wasn't making anything. I was not making $1,200. Then I moved up to $1,500 next year. You're like, oh, wow, I'm making a lot of money. And then, <laughs> you get that, then you get the first real fight. You're like, oh, yeah, I can, I can fight once a month and make three times this amount of money. Like, why am I doing this? And it's yeah. way more fun. <laughs> yeah, way more fun. And not as, not, as, not as much of a headache. Talk about the early days of Pride. Um, did you actually go to Japan um, for some of those fights? Yeah, my first, I fought Pride 8, my first fight, Fabiano Iha. Um, I had just moved to L.A. to train full-time. Um, I had just not made the, the 2000 Olympic team. Um, and I realized that I was never going to beat Joe Williams and Brandon Slay had just beat Joe. So I was like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to beat these guys. It's not, it's not in the cards for me. Mm -hmm. I got to figure out my next step. What's my transition? And so I can figure out what my next job is going to go from. I was like, let me just go fight for my, honestly, my thought was, I'm just gonna go fight for a little while to figure out what my next job process is going to be. Where I'm going to go next. I didn't realize it was going to become a career because there wasn't any money in it. There really wasn't any money back then. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about these guys that fought. It, there really wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars we made millions of dollars now you know there just wasn't the money just wasn't there it was still kind of illegal in in most states so you kind of had to figure your way out the UFC was just getting it you know Zufa just bought it they were just trying to get it put back so pride in Japan was a spot to go fight because they're paying cash they're paying a lot of cash a lot of crooked you know Yakuza involved mob involved movement and so it was like a lot of cash was being filtered back then and I went over the first time I'd ever been to Japan was the fight for Shuto and I fought Masoa Aguiar in a small Shuto fight I got like eight grand or seven grand or something for the win all in cash. It was like the most amount of money I've ever seen in my life. I was like, this wow. dude, this is like, this is it. Like I got this. And, and back then we were fighting four or five times a year because you had to, to make, you didn't put that thought process together, but you had to make the bills meet. You had to fight that much because the amount of money, but you're like, I can kind of do this. This is kind of something cool. So went and tried it out and, and, and it was great. Uh, so shoot to a small show, super small show, 1500, 2000 people, you know, uh, uh, then came back over for, forgive me, another promotion, same same size, a little bit more money. Then went and fought in Pride, 
36,000 fans. Pride 8, 36,000. I'm like, what in the living hell? I have, you know, Igor Vochanchin and, and what was his name? Francisco Breno opens the fight, opens the card. That's the first <laughs> fight of the night. Oh, and, and those people love it over there. Oh, you can't. So if you watch it, if you watch it at home, it's quiet. It's super quiet. You don't see, there's not a boisterous crowd. It's just not who they are culturally. So very quiet. But you see a transition on the ground, it'll erupt. You're like, what, what's this? <laughs> no, you don't understand how hard it was for him to slide past in that position against that guy. They understand the guy that's being beat. They're like, no, you don't understand. For him, for that to happen, there's so many factors that went on, and they all get it. Everybody gets it. Everybody gets the entire arena. They get everything about the, about the game. So when it, when it erupts, like you can hear the other corner clear as day. Right, right. Like, you meet in the opposite corner, hear your guy like he's in your ear because it's that quiet. But then something weird happens, something funky happens. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh. It, it's a totally, totally different ballgame. It's incredible. So when I fought in Pride, and I fought Fabiano, Fabiano was trained down in Huntington Beach at the time, and I'm in El Segundo. So we're about 45 minutes apart. We have to fly to Japan to fight each other. To me, that was amazing. I was like, yeah, we're, we're just right there. We'll just fight right there. Like, why do we got to go all the way here to fight? We didn't do it here. So we went over there and fought, and then saw it. Was, it was packed. It was stacked. It was, it was incredible. It was amazing. You know, amazing. How, how exciting was it for you to move to L.A.? You know, you're just kind of like embarking on this wild, wild west career of supporting yourself. Well, it, it, was, it was tough. Um, I, was married, I was married at the time. It was tough. Had to, you know, had to convince her that we're going to move. Uh, 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 she gave me an ultimatum. Don't ever give your partner an ultimatum. Ever. Because they will balk and push and run away. Don't ever give them an ultimatum. She gave me the ultimatum. We're going to live here five years. They're going to move back to Oklahoma. That was that was her ultimatum. Like if at the end of five years we're moving back. I'm like, well, you know, like we're not. We'll see. <laughs> we're not. And then obviously got divorced, and she left, and and she's been married, and, and as a PhD, you know, went back to school, got a PhD, and doing great. And you know, she's back actually back in Norman. She's back in at, at OU. <laughs> Uh, not at OU, but she's at the local high school teaching. Uh, she's doing great, but it was not. Don't don't give an ultimatum because we'll we'll just, especially a dude. Because we're always like, oh, we got to be engaged by Christmas. All right, guess Christmas is gonna be. I guess New Year's gonna be fun for me. <laughs> I'll be someplace else. You know, it's like uh, uh, it's got to happen naturally. So, <clears throat> so it's hard moving there because I had to deal with that ultimatum. I had to deal with trying to find a house and trying to find these things. And and like I said, I wasn't making any money. And my wife at the time was making all the money. She was a school teacher, so she was making the steady income, the co- income that comes in uh, uh, on the on the two week biweekly basis. Like she was making the money, so that's how the bills were getting paid until I would fight, and I had this huge amount of money in the account. And then we pay off some bills and pay off some other stuff, and then back on a month worth of living and then i'd be back to you know back to the same routine so it was, it was a struggle it was it was a struggle but it was fun it was fun you know uh, showing up every day for practice teaching classes at the raw training center i was around vladimir Manashenko and rico Ciccarelli. i mean it was a lot of fun like you know you got, you got some killers in the room you got mac danzig with us at the time <clears throat> you had a lot of great guys in that room and you had guys would float in and float out as a matter of fact i had guys that 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 were coming in there were martial artists that were coming in to learn from us that I now work for in the, in acting the stunts. Mm. Like these these guys are now my bosses. And like, oh, I remember we used to train together. You know, when, when Sean Patrick Flannery walks in, the guy from Boondock Saints, Saints and Powder, he walked in. He was like, he looks kind of familiar. I don't know from what, whatever. And he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. And we're just, we're rolling hard as balls. We're going crazy. 
And then 15 years later, I walk on set. I'm like, hey, by the way, Sean, hey, Frank Trigg, you remember me? He's like, of course I remember, of course I remember. Yeah, you're killing me today. You're stabbing me in the chest. Okay, all right. And we go through our, our acting scene and he's stabbing me in the chest for a movie. It's like, it's surreal. Like the amount of guys that came through that room when we were there, it was a lot of fun, but it was also, it's hard like everything else. It was difficult to kind of navigate. Got to find new dry cleaners. Got to find a new bank. Got to find a new restaurant. Got to find a new grocery store. Got to figure out the car situation. Like there's all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah, in my mind, I imagine you driving over the hill when you the first time you crest in CLA solo, you got a little car, but it was a quite different reality for you. And it's like, it's a good reminder that sometimes what you think is someone else's experience really is, is not even close to what it is, you know? No, man, you get down that El Cajon Pass coming down. It's basically I have to come. You come to that El Cajon Pass, that dumps you in the ranch, ranch of Cucamonga. You come over that thing, and you're like, it's the first time in a long time because you're you know, driving through Vegas. And there's yes. no real cities all the way through. And obviously, you get, I mean, you got Barstow and, 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 and some other ones, but nothing nothing crazy. You come over that pass, you see all the lights because that's when we came through. We came through at night. You're like, wow, this is L.A. You're not even in L.A. yet. <laughs> you're not even in L.A. yet. You still got another 45 minutes before you hit the outskirts of L.A. And then you get another 45 minutes after that to get to where I was living down in Torrance. You're like, jeez. And it was, it was pretty – It was pretty. you're right. It was pretty surreal. I totally forgot about that. It's funny you say that. Well, the, the only reason I say it's because when I was 19, I drove from Western Illinois to LA to wrestle at a Division II school in Riverside, of all places. I thought Riverside was LA. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and, and that's and that's where we come from. We kind of think about we think like, like that. Like, I'm like, is, all right, 40 minutes from the beach, no big deal, right? That's like three fucking hours. You're never getting to the beach from Riverside. You're done. No, you're <laughs> never going. It, which, they is call- why, which is why I won't leave the beach. People are like, <laughs> how do you, you can live so much cheaper in the valley, but yeah, I'm not leaving the beach because if I go to the valley. I'm never going to drive the hour and a half to come to the water. It's just no. not going to happen. They call it the Inland Empire for a reason. And I didn't even know that until I got out there. And I'm like, yeah. but to your point, I'm 19 in my little station wagon. I'll never forget the drive because the Mojave Desert so desolate and lonely. And you finally crest that hill and you're like, holy shit, this is L.A. Yeah, this is awesome. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another 45 minutes. Damn it. <laughs> Well, the, the last thing I want to wind down with, man, we've alluded to it. You're known for having an epic, um, not trilogy, but epic two fights with Matt Hughes. I didn't realize your first fight in the UFC was against Matt Hughes. Yeah, UFC 45. That's what I got in. Dude. Uh, back, back then, trash talking worked. You Seriously. Know? Um, you were the first uh, heel. No one, no, one really, no one really did that uh, before me. You know, and it's not me like trying to boast myself up, but that was, like, that was the game because everybody else was kind of known within their, within their genre before that. We're able to come in. And then, of course, Chuck and Tito were, were managed by Dana, so they both were able to get in the UFC. And, you know, it was like these guys all got brought in after SCG bought or after Zufa bought it. And uh, it, it, was, it was one of those things where you're like, the only way to get in was to either be training with somebody that was already in, be managed by somebody. In fact, there's very few managers that, that had, you know, Monty Cox, who ran all the Miltich and, and a hundred other guys, uh, had it in, but he wasn't my manager. So it was like, how do they get in? You got to talk noise. So talk noise on the, on the one guy that's the champ, and that's the only way you're going to be able to do it. You can't talk noise about the guy that's fit. You got to talk noise about the guy that's champ, so I just talk noise. And I got my, and I worked myself in. And, and back then we had, like, geez, uh, uh, the underground the underground forums and sure dog forums, the only place we could go. You go out and make a couple posts and talk and, you know, talk and, you know, uh, uh, and uh, make a little fun of some guys and then see what happens. And I got called up, you know, after, after beating. What helped is I beat Holman. Uh, Dennis Holman at the WFA. I beat him, and Holman had already beat Matt twice. So now I'm suddenly, oh, you beat Holman. This is the guy that, that beat Matt twice, and Matt's the champ. Let's see what happens. And so they brought me over. You know? Do some MMA math. They bring you in there. 
What yeah, was your A beats B, B beats C, C beats A, so nothing really works. <laughs> no, it never Very works confusing. out. And dude, you're you're still in the game. I mean, I read an article that said you've either refed, announced, fought, and pretty much every organization in the world, you're really into it. What's the biggest change between now and then? So my mom kind of coined the phrase, she's like, you're a renaissance man for MMA. Like you've done everything in the sport except mop the mat. I'm like, well, if you come early to the amateur events and we're checking the cage as a referee, sometimes we're mopping the mat. Like we, you know, we got to clean up some stuff that, you know, cause just put the, the stickers down, you know? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> when I first started with the UFC, you would call Dana's office and Dana would pick up the phone. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a buffer, right? Now you call Dana's office, you get a switchboard and they're like, we'll take a message. And we'll pass it to his assistant who will determine whether or not you're worthy of getting past the big man who then will make a determination if he even wants to talk to you. And the reality is if you don't have a cell phone, you're not getting a hold of him <laughs> because it's, it's just that big of a deal. They had like, they had like 25 people in the office down on, down on Sahara. Like may, maybe I think something like that. They have two floors of attorneys now off, off the uh, uh, 215. Like just two floors of attorneys. You're like, it's completely changed. Oh. That's that's from the administration standpoint. You go to the fights, sometimes there's more media at the fights than there were than there were fans at my fights. It's become that big of a deal. When you have a deal, obviously start with, with George Greenberg over at Fox Sports and, and and he gave him a shot and built, 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 and they jumped over to to, to from Fox, jumped over to, to ESPN, mm -hmm. which which to me, at the beginning, the deal was like, why? It doesn't make any sense. Then you see what's happening now. You're like, oh, it made sense. I just didn't have the worth all to see it. Yep. Dana saw it. I didn't see it. These guys saw it. I'm just, I'm not, I try to act like I'm in the game. I'm not in the game. <laughs> it's a whole different game that they're playing. That's why like, they're I'm, there. I'm a fan, but like, that was a touchdown, right? Touchdown. I'm like, this is basketball, man. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm here. You know, it's, it's like Eddie Murphy coming to America. He's like, oh, it was amazing. You're like, no, totally wrong. Everything was wrong. They went, they did a great home run. It was football. Like, what are you talking about? So it's like, that's the kind of mindset. And so now they're, dude, it's a juggernaut of a machine. It is everything. You know, you go to, you go to a, um, a, a Bellator and UFC are kind of run the same way um, from this mindset. <clears throat> you know who is doing what backstage. You know, you know exactly what every person's uh, a role is in their access and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to work things. And you get all that stuff when you walk in there, you're like, this is like, a, it's like a backroom concert, you know, obviously with yeah. WMA and IMG and blah, 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 you know, the alphabet soup that owns the UFC, you know, they, they do concerts quite a bit. So of course it makes sense how they run it, but it's like, it's a whole different ball game. And that timing, when they tell you the athlete's going to be there at 515, you're not waiting on that guy to show up at 545 and he's supposed to fight at 615, right? He shows up and he's mad at you because you're trying to do your pre-fight conference. He's wrapping his hands. You know, you're like, dude, it's not my fault. You should be a half hour ago. They're, when they say 515, he is there at 515. You go to his locker room at 515. He is walking in the door. You're like, hey, look, let me get this pre-fight uh, uh, conference with you done right away so we're not having to deal with it in a few minutes. I, I want you to be able to warm up without me being around. Yeah. Right, so let's get this done. And then it's easy. It's not done, done, done. Wow. You know, it's completely changed from that mindset. Uh, the biggest change now there are no fights. <laughs> yeah. Pandemic, we got no fights. So now it's, it's tough. I just came back from Dubai. Um, uh, Mark Goddard had to work the uh, UFC that was in Abu Dhabi. So I was able to fight the night. I was able to ref the night before in Dubai. Um, they're about an hour and a half apart. It's like uh, mm -hmm. two different states, but they're only an hour and a half drive apart. Um, 
and because Mark couldn't leave to do both because you have to stay in quarantine once you once you get there. So I did my quarantine for Dubai, went and ref, and then came back. But that's the first time I ref since since February. There's wow. been there's been no fights since February, and that was like uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. So it's like it's like, it's a long drawn out. So unless you're being carried by the UFC or being carried by the Bellator, the rest of us are kind of like we're stuck in limbo. There's no amateur fights for us to get our reps in. There's no uh, uh, pro fights for us to go to because I'm not traveling with the UFC. I'm not, I'm not licensed in, in Nevada, so I'm not working those cards there either. And it's just you know, it's it's tough right now. But but the sport, you know, when they when when they say it's the fastest growing sport, you know, in the world right now, they're not lying. Because Formula One can only get so big. There's only so many stadiums uh, that, that they can put people in. The stadiums are, are packed out. There's only so many spaces you can go. And there's only so much TV you can watch all the time of these things. That's the juggernaut. That is, that is the biggest sport right now in the world is, is Formula One. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. The UFC is catching them and surpassing. And when they say that they're bigger than the NFL, they might be bigger than the NFL. I know they're bigger than the NBA. You, you saw the NBA? So? I didn't. I didn't, even, I didn't even realize that the Lakers were playing for the finals. Dude, I had no I, idea. I forgot. I didn't even think that's a real title. I'm like, does that count? And everyone's like, he just, LeBron just won his fourth or fifth. I'm like, what league? Yeah. Like, I don't even know what's going, what's going yeah, exactly. on. Exactly. So, like, when they, when they say that UFC is bigger than NBA, yeah. Yep. Oh, I believe wow. that 100%. Baseball might be close. It's going to be kind of tough because a lot of fans like me that I watch a lot of baseball, but I don't go to a lot of baseball games. And I'm always doing something else. So, the TV is 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 tracking me being on the baseball station, but I may not necessarily be watching it. Yeah. The game is so long and I got other stuff to do. Yeah. You know, so it's always like playing in the background. But when you're talking to, to uh, these other cats, you're talking about like uh, uh, football, it's gotta be close, man. It's gotta be close right now. I hope so. I love it. I think it's amazing. It's a, I'm surprised more diehard wrestling fans aren't diehard UFC fans. There is definitely crossover, but not as much as you think, uh, just from running this podcast. I, I've kind of realized that. And that's, that, that is a little disheartening because there's so many guys that are former wrestlers that are that are champs. Millionaires. You know, like, I mean, look look at look at DC. Look at DC. Daniel Cormier. He's he's a great wrestler from Oklahoma State University. Battle his ass off against a lot of great name guys, and the wrestling fans don't really follow him all that much. No. Joe Sonnen. He, he's he's your he's your commentator on ESPN. And a lot, of, a lot of wrestlers don't really follow him. They're like, this is a wrestling guy. Like, we're a small community. Wrestlers, if we walk down, you go, hey, hey uh, jiu-jitsu wrestling to a guy with, with cauliflower ears. He's like, wrestling. Boom. We have a whole different conversation. We're buying beers for each other. We're buying dinner. We've never met. Have no idea. And that guy stopped in high school. Yeah. We have no clue, but he's got the ear. We have a common bond. We can hang out now. Yep. We understand what it's like to cut weight. We get the diets. We get the not being able to hang out with our friends during during a, a Christmas break because in Thanksgiving because we got a tournament coming up. But we knew all these things. We can talk now. We have a conversation. Why the crossover in the MMA isn't bigger with the wrestling fans? I think it's because guys like like Kale Sanderson went to coaching instead of coming over to fight. I also <laughs> think wrestling's a little. They're not really that out braggadocious. They're not that outgoing. They're not. You know, they sometimes are turned off by that. And a lot of wrestlers are kind of quiet, you know, if you think about it. Oh, no, I've, I've, I got a, a fight with the comedian, Adam, Adam Hunter. He was like, you had a great career. I was like, no, I really didn't have a great career in wrestling or in fighting. If you look at my record, it's not that good. It's really mm-hmm. not. You know, 29 and 9, I think, is my, is my fighting record. And the UFC, I think I'm 2 and 5 or something. Like, a horrible UFC run. You know, it was like, it made no, it made no sense. Like, I'm not that good. I'm just not. No, but you made the UFC and you had a great wrestling career and blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I, I was in a, I was on the U.S. team for five years, meaning I was in the top six 
for five years, but I was always like fifth and sixth. Mm-hmm. One time I made third, but I was never the guy. I was never the guy. So it doesn't, I never went to the world. I never went to, you know, so I don't have a, that's the wrestling mentality. Everybody else is second, except for the number one guy. And that's the only guy that can talk. And the number one guy is like, yeah, but last year I was fourth. So it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it was like, last year I was second. It really doesn't matter. You're like, you're right, man. We all, we all kind of, and right now, you and I wrestle right now. Right now, you and I have a match. You win for that moment in time. Right now is the only time you're better than me. The next time we meet, it might switch. And we all know that. Yeah, yeah, I beat him last time. Doesn't even beat him now, so I better keep my mouth shut. Right. I'm going to get caught. I keep talking noise, I'm going to get caught. And I got I to gotta kind of battle back from it. So, yeah, wrestlers don't like to talk much. We just, it's our mentality. It's our, it's our culture. Keep right. it square. Keep it straight, you know? Frank Trigg, I got a sales call that started one minute ago, but I got to ask you this question, then we're going to bounce. One word answer. Stylebender John Jones. Are we going to see it? No. Dang it. I, I want to see it too, and Bender wins. At any I, just, I want to see any fight that I shut the Saturday down for, and I'm strapped in an all-day event on Saturday, like a big, uh, 100% big I want to see it. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Okay. I, I really don't. Frank Trigg. And Bender can pick the weight class. He can pick whatever weight class he wants. He still wins. Okay. You heard it here, folks. Frank, this has been awesome, man. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Sorry I made you late for your meeting. No good. No problem, man. Take care. <laughs> Take care. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner as well as our website, wrestlingchangemylife.com. Take care, y'all.